Luke chapter 21. I was trying to watch our girls this morning and try to sit on the couch at the same time and, and uh, pray a little bit for this morning's worship service. And uh, Sophia came up to me, and our oldest, and said, uh, what are you doing, Dad? I said, oh, I'm just praying for uh, our worship service, that God would be glorified and that I would uh, say the words he wants me to say. And uh, she said, well, Dad... God created all things, and we need to worship him in joyfulness and delight, and his word is a light to our path. So there you go. (laughs) I didn't know what to say after that. So I thought I'd share that with you, and uh, (laughs) it encouraged my heart anyways. So Uh, Luke chapter 21. Verses 5 through 24. Let's ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Father, what we know not, we pray that you would teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. By your spirit and for your son's sake. Amen. Luke 21, verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign uh, that they are about to take place? He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. 
Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Perhaps you have a short list in your mind of things you would say, if that ever happens, my whole world will come crashing down. Sometimes we, we hear people say things like this in a more lighthearted way. Right? Your favorite restaurant closes, your whole world comes crashing down, or your favorite store closes down, or uh, sadly, you know, we lose our phones, right? You lose your phone nowadays, and you feel like you kind of lose your bearings. In a sense, people might say their whole world comes crashing down in sort of a lighthearted and joking way. To the faithful Jew, in a a much more serious way, uh, they would say that uh, the destruction of the temple, the time of Jesus, if the temple were destroyed, their whole world would come crashing down. It would would be the end. They would say, well, this is is, uh, God bringing about the end of the age. What happens in this passage, though, is that Jesus separates these two things in the minds of his listeners. He untangles the threads of connection between the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. And in doing so, Jesus gives his people a new way of thinking about their lives before God, that it moves beyond this sense of a a geographic center of our worshiping life. And it has wonderful implications for Christ's people today has wonderful implications for us. Even in this new way of thinking, Jesus explicitly promises to his people uh, that by the power of his spirit, he will always be with us, that he will strengthen us, and that our salvation is sure. No matter the circumstances, our salvation is sure. So let's open up uh, this passage together. You may want to keep it open in front of you. We'll be referring to various parts of it and trying to walk through it somewhat carefully. But three things that we see in this passage is, first, Jesus is going to reveal something about the temple in verses 5 through 8. He's going to reveal something about the temple. Then in verses 9 through 19, he's going to reframe our thinking about the temple and about life lived before God relative uh, to the temple that stood in those days. And then lastly, he's going to talk about responding responding at the proper time. A revelation about the temple, reframing our thinking, responding at the proper time. We just saw in the Gospel of Luke, the last time we looked at it together, and Jesus uh, condemned the action of the Pharisees, the, the culture that they had created, and the situation that unfolds right before Jesus is that this widow comes and gives these last two coins that she has. And Jesus does not hold her up as an example to be followed, but rather laments this reality. He's saying the culture that the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have created is one that is, it, it extorts the helpless, and particularly those like this widow. We see that, that this is confirmed in the beginning of our passage because the natural reaction if, if Jesus sort of laments this reality, the natural reaction that someone would have would be to point out to Jesus, but yes, look at the temple, look at how beautiful it is. And that's exactly what we see in verse 5. People say to Jesus, look at the, 
the good purpose of, of giving to the temple. Look at what it has produced. It, uh, this wonderful building that was in Jerusalem, this glorious temple, stood for many as a feather in the cap of the religious Jews, even if it had to be built by ruining the lives of the widow there at the, uh, or those like her at the beginning there of chapter 21. And this is what makes Jesus' proclamation about the temple so shocking because it was so much the center of their religious life and all of their life. Now, Jesus is not being antagonistic to the temple itself per se. Rather, he is being antagonistic towards the misunderstanding of the temple. The, the temple in Jerusalem is a wonderful piece of God's revelation, but it needs to be understood in its proper way. And from our vantage point, we can say it was pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus says this shocking revelation. This temple is not going to stand forever. By this, Jesus is not referring to the fact that in less than one week from this time, in this passage, he is going to uh, make the temple obsolete through his sacrifice on the cross. Rather, he is saying quite literally that this temple is going to be destroyed. There will not be one stone left upon another. It's going to be wiped out. And this is something that happened in the year 70 AD, and we'll return to this uh, later on in today's sermon. It's nearly impossible for us to grasp how jolting this would be in the ears and the mind of a faithful Jew. As we said, it, the center of their life, just as a, a Muslim reveres Mecca and dreams about making a religious pilgrimage there. So Jerusalem was conceived in the mind of faithful Jews, that the, the glorious presence of God, the spirit of glory, rested upon the temple and everything that happened there. Thus, to be closer to Jerusalem was to be closer to God's blessing and his favor and his presence. This would have been hugely, hugely shocking to hear this kind of uh, thing and crushing to think about uh, how, how awful it would be to see this temple come down. Perhaps even uh, much more crushing than if you were to, to tell, say, a Bears fan today that they go to the, the game and Soldier Field, not one stone is left upon another. It would be even uh, more serious than that. Sorry, I couldn't uh, resist mentioning that. So the natural response, then, is the question that's asked in verse 7. They ask Jesus two questions. So if it is true that this temple is going to be destroyed, we want to know when it's going to happen, and we want to know signs that are going to accompany it. You need to understand the nature of uh, what they're asking. Uh, the nature of what they're asking. Because uh, they would have thought that the destruction of the temple would have meant the end of the age. If the temple were destroyed, you may as well be destroying the sun. Right? Life is now over. So Jesus begins by confronting this tendency that they have. This natural tendency to want to know when something is going to happen and to want to know the signs that are going to accompany it. When Jesus is doing this, he's really confronting the tendency that we all have. We want to know when are the, 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 the big events of God's redemptive history, when are they going to unfold? 
When's the next big thing going to take place? When is the Lord going to come again? Isn't it amazing that you have so many warnings that Jesus himself says throughout all of the Gospels, uh, don't follow, don't go after those who say they know the time or uh, those who claim to be some special kind of Messiah, Savior type figure. And yet again and again and again, you see people who publish books or uh, preach in a certain way saying, I know when it's all going to happen and people flock to them. Interesting in this passage, isn't it, that Jesus says, do not go after them. It's that picturesque way of describing what happens, that when people follow false teachers, particularly those who claim to know the big events of redemptive history, when it's all going to go down, that people will follow them off of the straight and narrow path of God's word. And so, though it may be uncomfortable in many ways, the fact of the matter is, is that as God's people, we will not know exactly when the big events of the end of the age will occur. And as we see in this passage, this has a large meaning for how we are to live. It's instructive for how God's people are to live. We are to live consistently and faithfully in devotion to God, in devotion to Christ. We are to live seamlessly each and every day, being willing and ready to say, come Lord Jesus, living in faith, consistently every day, living the same way. So when Jesus reveals this about the temple, it is shocking in many ways, but in verses 9 through 19, he reframes the thinking of his people. Not just those who are listening, but this has huge implications for us as well. Jesus says at the beginning of verse 9, When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. Now that's, it seems odd, doesn't it? Wars, rumors of wars, revolutions. These would, in the minds of most people, they would be really the number one thing that frightens you. If there's a war that's about to break out in uh, your homeland, we've been so, so blessed by the Lord's providence to, to not have to see the, the battlefields of war on our soil for a long, long time. But to have that come to your front door is extremely frightening. I still remember uh, September 11th, 2001, and uh, we were never allowed to watch television before church, I, or before school, it was a school day, and uh, um, I asked special permission for, from my mom because my favorite Christian rock band was playing on WGN Morning News. So providentially, uh, the Lord allowed the TV to randomly sort of be on that morning. I don't know what that says about Christian rock music, but we'll just... Um, and so we had the television on, and uh, about 90 seconds after I turned it on, this, the second plane flew in. They, they sort of cut to it, and uh, we saw it unfold live on, on, on TV that morning. And uh, I remember my mother... Uh, coming up and standing next to me and just sort of the, the power of that moment. And uh, she couldn't even, she could barely talk. She sort of choked out. She said something about war, you know. Um, just this, this uh, sense that she had that we were, we were going to go to war because of this. It's very frightening uh, to everyone. Amos chapter 3 recognizes this. It says, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? People are afraid of wars and Rumors of wars, of revolutions. 
This is perhaps in even a deeper sense true for the faithful Jew because all of the historical events of their nation were the outworkings of God's covenant blessings and his covenant curse. They had been exiled before. They had known what it was like to have the judgment and the punishment of God come upon them as a collective nation. So to hear about these, these foreign nations coming in would be, it would be this, this word of, of, is God judging us again? Are we going back into exile? Or uh, what is going to happen? But verse 9 is, is where Jesus begins to untangle these threads of connection between uh, the destruction of the temple and the end of all things. Look at what he says in verse 9. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. An Israelite would see a foreign army coming in, and quite possibly that would mean the end, the destruction of the temple, which in their mind they're thinking, okay, so this means now it's all coming down. This is the end of the age. This is, this is the end, right? But Jesus says, the end, at the, at the end of verse 9, the end will not come right away. There may be foreign nations that come in. There may be foreign nations that come into Jerusalem. There may be another army that comes and destroys the temple itself. It does not mean that the end of all things has come. And then look what happens in verses 10 and 11. It, it moves up to this global scale. We ask in verses 10 and 11, is Jesus talking about things that happen before the destruction of the temple? Or has he moved up to this global scale to talk about the end of all things? It seems it's more the latter. In verses 10 and 11, he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. In these two verses, Jesus is telling us what is going to be characteristic about all of the world until he comes again. In this world, there are wars, rumors of wars, nation rising up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There's earthquakes, there's famines, pestilences in various places, these things do not necessarily mean that the end of all things is near. But then look at the last thing he says. He says there will be great signs from heaven. What that means is that when the end of all things does come, it will be unmistakable. No one will be able to argue with it. No one will be able to question. When Christ comes again, the heavens will rend apart. And everyone will know. Revelation chapter 6 actually describes this. Uh, Revelation 6 describes Christ's second coming, the day of judgment. And it has these great signs from heaven. It says this. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. And all of these great signs from heaven. And the response of all the people on the earth in Revelation 6 is this vision of kings and commoners, slave and free, rich and poor. They all hide themselves under rocks and in caves because they say, the day of the wrath of the Lamb has come. In verses 9 and 10 and 11, Jesus 
untangles these threads of connection between the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. He says to, to the people who are listening to him that the, the destruction of the temple is going to come. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the end will come right away. Another thing that this means, though, is that uh, God's people lose their geographic center of worship. The spirit of glory rested on the temple in the Old Covenant. Jerusalem was this holy city set apart, different than every other city on planet Earth. But because of the work of Christ, because of the, the gospel and the kingdom going out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, God's people lose their geographic center of their religious life. And what this means is that uh, this development after the life of Christ and the resurrection of Christ is that God's people are to have this new and fuller sense of living with a heavenly mindedness. A heavenly mindedness and an awareness that our citizenship and uh, our life and our salvation is rooted in heaven where Christ is. Jesus confirms this by saying the religious leaders of Israel... And Jerusalem, they're going to reject Christ. They're going to persecute the followers of Jesus. They're going to lay their hands on you. All people will hate you because of my name. Luke is actually going to to bring us to an explicit fulfillment of these words of Jesus. As early as Acts chapter 4, when it says that the apostles had hands laid on them and they were thrown in prison. Later on in the book of Acts, Paul has to answer before rulers and governors for his work as a missionary and as a minister of the gospel. So much of this ends up happening before the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, but it sets the course for how the followers of Christ are to think and how to live until he comes again, until those great signs from heaven. The temple-centered mindset passes away. And we are called as God's people to be pilgrims, to be sojourners, to be wanderers on the earth. And again, this is not something that's supposed to give us unrest, to to lack an earthly home, that, that final rootedness of an earthly home is something that's very distressing. But Jesus says, do not be frightened by the things that would normally frighten others. Yes, they're going to lose this geographical center of their religious life. But the glorious truth is what? The glorious truth is that they are seated in heaven with Jesus. That they are seated in heaven with Christ. That they are given the Holy Spirit from on high. That the spirit of glory rests upon them. In other words, all the blessings of the closeness of God's presence, the spirit of glory that rested upon the the temple, that will go with them wherever they go, that they will be clothed with power from on high. And the same, of course, is true for us. Our religious life is not tied to any geographical location or any geopolitical kingdom. As much as we love this building and we praise the Lord for it and we want to steward it well and provide access to it, the power of the gospel and the power of the kingdom goes forth into the world regardless of place, as the gospel is preached and as the Spirit gives life to sinners. If our building was lost in an earthquake or a flood or a fire, we would still worship the Lord just the same in spirit and in truth. 
And that is because in Christ and by the power of the Spirit, we are not brought on an earthly pilgrimage to the earthly Jerusalem, but by the power of the Spirit, particularly when we gather for worship, we are brought into the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly tabernacle. So that worship is indeed a heavenly experience. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, but you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. There's this loss of this geopolitical center of their religious life. Jesus says, do not be frightened. You'll be seated in heaven with me. And that will be where your citizenship rests. It's for this reason that Jesus says, you will have this opportunity to be witnesses. To be witnesses for me. To be witnesses to these heavenly realities. That all the things that the church does is to attest to this other life. This heavenly life. Jesus says to all of his followers, both in that day and today, that persecutions will come. Persecutions will come. But the comfort in the midst of any circumstance is that the spirit of glory rests upon God's people, upon the faithful, the Holy Spirit. So it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. These people who are going to walk through shame and walk through rejection and have this temptation to think, uh, God must have rejected me for me to have to go through this. Peter says, no, whatever your circumstances are, cling to Christ. The spirit of glory rests upon you. Many of us have the same kinds of temptations to say when when things are rough in our lives or when we're asked to go through a trial or some kind of valley. We say, man, the Lord must have rejected me. Cling to Christ. The spirit of glory rests upon you regardless of circumstances. Jesus gives his listeners explicit promises in this passage as well. He says that he will graciously give them words to say. He says, I will give you words and wisdom. Really, the, uh, the language there is, I will give you a mouth, a mouth and wisdom. In other words, the one who created our mouth can fill it with words. This explicit promise that the followers of Christ don't all need to be skilled orators or apologists. They don't need to have some kind of memorized speech if it ever comes to that time of persecution. But rather by the power of the Spirit, God graciously gives His people things to say. And oftentimes it's just this very simple, very simple proclamation that Christ is Lord and that uh, we will not acquiesce to the laws of man that conflict with the laws of God. Kind of reminded of this as we, I've been following the continued persecution of believers in China. The heart of all the people there is to witness to Christ, that they would witness to the lordship and the gospel of Christ so that all of those who oppose them might be brought to their knees before Christ, whether now or on the last day. So Jesus says, stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. Keep the faith, endure, persevere by confessing the name of Christ, and keep confessing his name. In this way, we see that our our endurance in the faith, our endurance in clinging to Christ, it doesn't happen by our own strength, 
but rather the, the grace of God working in us because we are saved by faith. We continue to cling to Christ and to confess his name. And finally, this highlights the otherworldly logic of it all. In verse 16, Jesus says, You may be betrayed by your relatives and your close friends. Some may even put you to death. But then in verse 18, he says, But not one hair of your head will perish. This otherworldly logic of it all that brings to the fore that with this heavenly mindedness, with this deep sense of these realities rooted for us in heaven, we know that ultimately this life is not all that there is. Our citizenship is beyond the grave, beyond the horizon of this world. One of these believers in China, uh, early reign covenant church, penned these words. Lord, you alone are our support. You alone are our joy. You alone are our peace. Although this Christmas month has not been very peaceful, we know that you were born into this world for us. We are waiting for you. It appears as though evil has triumphed, but Christ still reigns. Christ is the Son of the eternal God. He died for our sins, rose on the third day, gave us eternal life. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And so we live in order to worship the Lord. I follow the Lord to Gethsemane. I follow him to the place of the skull and then to that everlasting home where sorrow and darkness are no more. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Heavenly mindedness as uh, Jesus brings to the fore uh, this reality of losing this geographic center, the worshiping life of his people. The same is true for us. We end with the last few verses, Jesus talking about responding at the necessary time. As he has uh, separated these two things, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age, he then gives them instruction for what they are to do when these wars and revolutions come upon Jerusalem. Verse 20, Thus, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, what are they to do? Well, they know that the end will not come right away. This is not the end of the age. This is not the end of all things. But rather, what is it? It is the judgment of God that was to come upon the city of Jerusalem and the temple for their rejection of Christ, for their rejection of the Messiah. Luke actually uses explicit phrases from Deuteronomy 28, which talks about the covenantal curse of God if Israel is to disobey. And Israel largely rejected Jesus. The Messiah came. He walked among his own people, but his own people did not receive him. So Jesus says when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, which is exactly what happened in 70 AD, then they should flee. Why should they flee? Because it's not the end. It's not the end of the age. It's not the end of the world like we read in Revelation 6. Rather, it's the desolation of Jerusalem. So then we see that fully and finally at this time, uh, God's people saw the judgment of God exercised uh, upon the temple. And in terms of fleeing, this is exactly what the Christians did in 70 AD. Historical accounts have the Christians fleeing to the nearby village of Pella, um, not Pella, Iowa, but a nearby village in Jerusalem. And thus what started in the life of Jesus was ultimately finished. That the city of Jerusalem became like any common city with no religious significance, that it was treaded upon by Gentiles. It meant, it meant that its, its holy status became obsolete. 
through the life of Christ. And this is still true today. Right? Though religious politics often center around this city more than any other, the fact of the matter is that through the gospel, through the work of the Holy Spirit and giving life to dead sinners, God brings us to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, not as an earthly pilgrimage, but as the result of being given heavenly life. And so this land is, is fought for. We see that particularly amongst Jews and Muslims. We've seen in the history of the church Christians get very zealous about the the Holy Land, but it is common, like any other city in the world, because of the judgment of God, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, as Jesus says. Now, Jesus speaks then to us about the temple and the end of the age. These things will happen, but they are not the same. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and the church remains. The church continues to worship God in spirit and in truth, By the power of the Spirit, we are brought to the heavenly Jerusalem. In the meantime, until Christ comes again, the church is not to press into curiosity about uh, the specific day or time when Jesus is going to come again, the last day, the day of judgment, but rather, we are to be ready all the time. We are to be constantly watchful, always faithful, always living in service to our King. We are to live like He is coming today. We are to pray that he would, that he would come quickly, and, that, and to know always that whenever he comes, he will come in his good timing. Until then, our religious life is not tied to any geopolitical kingdom or place, but rather we are to rest in the life that we are given in heaven, seated in the heavenlies with Christ, with an imperishable inheritance that waits for us there. The comfort that we receive from that heavenly life spurs us on to remain faithful even in the most dire of circumstances, through persecutions, through trials, through hardships, challenging times. Whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. The power to do this is found in the gospel itself, the life and the work of Christ. He calls us to bear witness to him. He is the one who, before Pontius Pilate gave the good and perfect confession of the gospel, he bore witness about himself. And because he passed the test, because he broke through, the gates of heaven, because he bestowed us in new ways with the power of the Spirit at Pentecost. We are able to follow him through the power of the gospel and to always be found faithful. For we stand alive in the risen and the faithful one, Jesus Christ, our righteousness and our salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you for the gospel of grace. We thank you and we praise you that uh, you have given us these promises to walk through this earth as strangers, pilgrims, aliens, uh, sojourners. Father, we know that uh, as you call us to do that, it can be so difficult to find our life uh, hidden in Christ. So we ask that you would do do that by the power of your spirit, that you would give us a deeper sense of that and draw us into deeper communion with you in the covenant of grace. Father, we we trust and know that you can do that. We thank you for your word and for your truth. We pray that we would all uh, look to the things that are above, where Christ is, uh, seated at your right hand. We thank you, we praise you for all of these things, in Christ's name. We'll sing verses 1, 2, and 5 of number 318.